so the question was like, how do we talk about the indigenous people of Minnesota? And we're like, we lead with contemporary voices and pieces because we wanted to counteract that notion that native people are no longer here. Hello, welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Miigwech for joining us today. Native Lights is, at its core, a place for Native folks to tell their stories. Every week we have wonderful conversations with great guests from a whole lot of different backgrounds. Uh, these are community leaders, artists, musicians, a bunch of awesome people. So um, we talk to them about their gifts, how they share those gifts with their community. And it centers around, you know, finding purpose and contributing to the community around you. So I can't wait to continue amplifying Native voices today. So Leah, how you doing? Yeah. What's going on? I'm great. I feel like, you know, with the lack of light, it's hard to wake up. I feel like, you know, 4 or 5 p.m., I'm finally starting to get awake. <laughs> and then it starts <laughs> getting dark again. It's an odd time. Odd time to exist. But... Actually, I'm curious. How do you feel about daylight savings time? Daylight, daylight savings, savings time. I knew it. I knew it. I was going to ask you that too. We uh, we've been talking about that a little bit. Uh, oh yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I I feel like hasn't there been times where they've got rid of it because people you know didn't like it, and then mm-hmm. they eventually re- regretted that decision. And they just reversed it again. So I feel like I kind of just want it to go away, but I know like I probably <laughs> will. Regret it. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? In, you know, I always thought it was a little silly until I started sending my kid out to the bus stop in the morning. Sure. And when when it got super dark, we wear a headlamp now to walk down a quarter <laughs> mile or so to the mailboxes for him to get picked up. It's dark. And then, you know, before we put our clocks forward, then at least get a little, shoot, a little lighter. (laughs) Mm, (laughs) You can see your feet in front of you. But yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I kind of think, what if we just, instead of picking one or the other, just like go a half an hour (laughs) towards the other? Just do like a a compromise. Yeah, a little compromise. (laughs) Nobody wins. Why not? (laughs) Nobody loses. (laughs) Everybody's just slightly annoyed in that. <laughs> Today, our guest is Rita Walzek Arndt. Uh, Rita is a White Earth Nation citizen who is the program and outreach manager of the Native American Initiatives Department at the Minnesota Historical Society. She's also the curator of the Our Home Native Minnesota exhibit at the Historical Society. And here she is. Buju Rita. Buju Anin. Rita Walzak Arndt Dijnakaz Gawaba Beganakug and Dujaba. My name is Rita Walzak Arndt. I am of Polish descent and a citizen of the White Earth Nation of Ojibwe. I was born, that's Smushi, and I was born and raised in the suburbs. So I, that's where I am around from the cities, and I currently work at the Minnesota Historical Society as a program and outreach manager in the Native American Initiatives Department. 
Nice. Sorry for my cat. He like, I swear my whole thing is when I start talking, he's like, who's she talking to? (laughs) Oh, I can hear the the meowing. Did you say smooshy? Yeah, his name is Smooshy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great name. He's very vocal. He's got a smoker's meow. That's what my husband does. on your mind lately? Is there anything that you're kicking around, thinking about, mulling over that's coming to the surface for you? I'm thinking about the 250th anniversary of the United States. Um, so working at the Minnesota Historical Society, um, there. so apparently it's in 2026. And to me, as an Indigenous person, I'm like, I don't care about the birth. Of, like, I could care less about, you know, the birth of America and we're in uh like where we are is like we weren't one of the original colonies or whatever. And so I was like, what what was happening here? But then I realized, like having those conversations, I was out in, in New York at a conference for the American Association of State and Local History. And th- like in New York on the East Coast, they are all like in in this to win, like, because they got all this stuff to talk about the 250th, right? And like stuff was happening, like it was super colonized over there. So all this crazy business was happening. And I'm just like, I don't care about them. Like, I seriously don't. I have always have a small hope that the United States will crumble before the 250th, just because why not? (laughs) You said it out loud. (laughs) I told this to the director of the Historical Society, and he was like, oh, I bet you a lot of people would agree with you for that. So I'm always like, like, people are going to think it's chaotic, but I realized we also have an opportunity because of where we are to talk about what was happening here and what we now call Minnesota and like who was here and what kind of like impact did that have for Minnesota, which is a, like is a lot like 1776 like we it's not like there were you know people were signing papers or what they probably I mean they were there was fur traders right but it wasn't in the same sense that they this all colonized history is so I was like I really am trying to think of how to better take advantage of that so we can thrust it into people's faces when everybody else is celebrating instead of just focusing on what happened out east 250 years ago like what happened what was happening here like in Minnesota and like there's so many opportunities so that's like that it's been on my mind because that is what I want to talk about not about the founding fathers I hear that so much and I didn't even realize that was coming up so thank you (laughs) for telling me you must have to work really far out in advance yep Yeah, okay. Um, But what that just brings up kind of a pet peeve of mine, too, is when people from, like, around here or wherever are like, oh, I'm going to go out east where there's, like, so much more history. Yeah, and we don't have, like, castles or, like, dungeons. (laughs) I mean, I I love me a good castle, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's, yeah, it's that Western thought of what what is history and like how and they want to see people want to see that old 500 year old house or whatever and realizing well our ancestors everything they did was meant to you know recycle back into the earth like there wasn't meant to have something 
to stand for 500 years. Even those, I'm sure a lot of those houses that are upright, still upright now, probably weren't meant built to stand mm-hmm. for 500 years. So it's just really interesting to think about. And uh, yeah, a lot of people that, you know, they romanticize that because they, they, you know, the castles over in Europe and all of these things, and they miss out on all this other history that's happened just because they're, they get stuck on like having a tangible item in their hand or like they need something exactly from this date. Otherwise they, they don't really understand it. And I struggle with that a lot because um, people are like, well, what can you, do you have an artifact that you can share with us from the 1650s about Ojibwe people? And I was like, no, (laughs) I was like, but I can tell you some of the things that they did. And like, why can't we use a contemporary item that is still done in our traditions that was Mm -hmm. done 500 years ago, you know, like wild rice has been eaten in this place for centuries. There's a pot that we have in our archaeology collection that had white um, wild rice residue from 600 CE. So if my math is good, that's 1400 years ago. So that is amazing. And so, so meaningful to me to think about how food and like that kind of thing coming together for meals, that kind of thing. That to me is what I hold on to instead of like these old buildings. I think about we've been eating the same food and like, it's still good. We love it. (laughs) We love it. (laughs) That's great though. I I like the, your reaction, you know, to the 250th is, is, you know, like, I don't care about it, but at the same time you want to think about providing a perspective of what's happening in Minnesota. So I'm just curious, uh, where that comes from, like, where does that passion come from? So I've always liked like history and social studies, and but I've always been a very visual learner. So my degrees are in art history because you look at a painting or something and you just learn all about it. And then I could remember, that's how I remember like who, you know, who painted it, what was going on, who the figures were, all kinds of things. So that really is how I got into history is more from that way because of that visual learning. And because I am, my family's from white earth, I had that, always had that interest since being little, you know, like growing up to know more about my community, especially from living in the suburbs. I had that disconnect. Um, I would go up to the reservation, sure, but I didn't grow up there. And so, and I wasn't necessarily, besides my cousins, I wasn't really around many Native kids. So I really had to, uh, you know, look out for that information. So art was a really cool way to do it because a lot, one of the things that's cool is that a lot of people, when they think of the term art, they think of fine arts, but for Native people, anything that is made is essentially art. And that all that kind of um, definition kind of got taken away from Native people, uh, I feel like, because of what other people expected out of, like, as fine art. And, like, because that, the the care and the thought that is put into a lot of things that are just used for day-to-day use is just amazing to look at and the detail and the ideas and everything. So that, I really latched on to that visual thing to just look at it and then be able to tell a story from it. And I absolutely, so that's where I fell in love with it. And in grad school, I was able to really hone in on focusing on um, indigenous representation, especially in museums, which is not that great overall. (laughs) 
And so it's like, it's a great conversation. So that kind of steered me towards the museum field and to where um, I work now today. Now at, at the historical society, I started as a cataloger. So it's like, it was pretty entry level, but it was, it was cool. Cause I like that um, database kind of work too. It's always fun. And I was the fortunate to be able to catalog the majority of the Native American collections. There's about 6,000 um, artifact collections. I hate the word artifacts. So I'll call them um, 3D objects. But there was about 6,000 that had, a, you know, Indians of North America type classification and about only about a third of them were digitized when I started. And then before I transitioned out of that position, I was able to get like 90% of that done. And the reason I didn't finish it is because of that very generic Indians of North America, and it would be a bow. No, it would be an arrow with nothing on it to tell me anything. So it was a lot, like it would be a lot more work. So I'm really grateful to have that. And so I have like, I've learned a lot about our collections and then in all kinds of stuff. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today, we're speaking with Rita Walzak arndt a White Earth Nation citizen who is the Program and Outreach Manager of the Native American Initiatives Department at the Minnesota Historical Society. Could you talk more about that, uh, the digitizing of these 3D objects um, and just how, how that works? I'm really curious. Yeah, so most museums... Any place that has like some kind of collection has a some kind of cataloging management system database. And the good news is that we, the Historical Society uses the same system as the National Museum of American Indian in DC. So if I ever want to go, I have that going for me, that I have that background. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's essentially a way to record this, like the object itself, like where it lives, should it move anywhere, like the movement, if it is ever conserved, if it was put on exhibit um, and have any information that um, came in with the object um, tied to it. So the Historical Society has been collecting since long before Minnesota was even a state. 1849 was when it started. And literally number one was a native object. The first thing, number one, was a native object. I think it was is either a pipe or a tomahawk, something really like that, but it was just very interesting. So they've been, we've been, the historical society has been collecting native stuff forever. And whatever that the person who donated the item told, like gave with that stuff is what was there. Um, so good and bad because sometimes people, they didn't know anything or people lie. <laughs> we have a lot of sitting bulls things, which is very interesting because sitting bull didn't live here. Uh, but you know, <laughs> Sure, sure. You know, I don't know. He got around. I know that. It's hard to know if that is accurate or not. So there's a lot going into that. And like part of the digitization too is like making sure there's a photograph, measurements, stuff like that, like talking about materials. So that's when I really like I was all up in the business of some of the things, which is really fun too, because then you get to see the details. And I love the details on um, some of the objects because it, you see the whole thing and fine and dandy. But when those details, my husband bought me a macro lens for my own beadwork to take close-up photos of, but I used it for some of the collections items. And you can see some of the old thread pieces. You can see some of the tracings that our, our, our grandmothers um, traced 
on those designs and stuff. And you can see the sinew that was used in some of the things. So it's just, I absolutely love it. And I'm not in collections as much as I would like to be anymore, but I still like, I still am actively trying to share what I, I know about the collections, especially with tribal communities. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Rita Walzak arndt a White Earth Nation citizen who is the Program and Outreach Manager of the Native American Initiatives Department at the Minnesota Historical Society. Was there a particularly interesting, fun, frustrating, or something piece that you digitized like that? I'll tell you about a project that took way longer than I thought it would. Um, and I'm very grateful that I was that um, I was able to do that because at one point the digitization focus at the historical society was on uh, quantity, not quality. But when I was doing it, there was more of an emphasis on quality, which was I think really a, a nice turn and also a different thing. Uh, there was this um, dude. His name was Gilbert Wilson, and he was, a, I believe, a Presbyterian minister, but in his spare time, he was an amateur anthropologist. And while he, in his spare time, as doing his anthropology hobby, he was hired by the American Museum of Natural History in New York to travel to um, Fort Berthold, um, North Dakota, to the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara tribes to essentially study them and to collect items for the Museum of Natural History. Um, because he what he was just doing anthropology for funsies and not as like, he was not a trained anthropologist. He wrote down exactly what um, these folks said versus a lot of anthropologists at the time just were writing down what they were hearing, what, what they like, what they were thinking. Oh, okay, they were, this is how they, you know, do like process food or hunt or stuff like that. So it's a very interesting um, collection. And while the Museum of Natural History um, collected that, we have his personal collection that he collected himself at the Historical Society. So there's journals he wrote, there's photographs, there's artifacts, all these things. And it was donated by his widow in the 30s and it was split up in the museum amongst different places and it kind of they got it disconnected but a lot of that stuff was there was a disconnect between what was written in the journal about these pieces like gardening tools these dried squashes stuff like that there was a disconnect so I was able to actually connect that reconnect them together with these kinds of things and it, it was really great and um, it took a because a lot of the stuff was on microfilm which if you haven't had to do microfilm it is awful. I hope for one day some genius needs to be thinking about how to make microfilm easier to navigate and ease more accessible because it's just not that accessible, but it's been used for the past like 70 some years. Maybe don't quote me on that. But the good thing that came out of this project is that we were able to support the Mandan Hidatsa and Arikara, the three affiliated tribes to get copies of those journals and everything for them to use at their cultural center that they just opened. And we like, and we, you can Google it. It had a recent uh, news release with NPR calling it a digital repatriation. It definitely isn't, but it'd be a way more confusing to explain 
<laughs> like, cause the digital repatriation would be to give the stuff back and then us keep the digital copy, but they have a copy of the stuff and we still have the stuff. It's still a great thing because the fact of it is, is they've had copies of copies of microfilm. So they've never had great copies of, of these things. And then there's opportunity to talk about how, how these items might be able to go back to the cultural center. So like that kind of work, like connecting the, like the dots to be able to complete the stories of these objects is like what I really like to, what I really enjoy with um, working with collections and working at museums and um, being parts of exhibits and stuff like that. So onto the Minnesota Historical Society's, uh, the exhibits. I, I know you're the curator of the Our Home Native Minnesota um, and could you just talk about that and, you know, what that exhibit wanted to accomplish? Yeah, of course. Um, so our home native Minnesota, it's, it'll, in a month, it'll celebrate its three, third anniversary being opened. Um, it was, was a long time coming and for a couple of reasons. Uh, something that the Minnesota Historical Society kind of, is, it seems, people kind of see it as like an authority of talking about Minnesota history. And so folks would be like, well, I want to learn more about indigenous history. How can you help me there? And we're like, well, <laughs> it's like you can go to the Mille Lacs Indian Museum or you can go to Lower, you know, Lower Sioux Agency or to Pipestone or go visit a tribe. And they're like, but we're in the cities and we want to learn about it, you know, here. And a lot of, uh, there was a lot of need from teachers, especially in um, social studies teachers, because they're the content to teach about Minnesota Indigenous history, I think was added about like a decade ago to the social studies curriculum. And now they're adding it to more into the arts curriculum and to language arts and um, science STEM as well to talk about all those things. So there was a need for like resources. So then like how can, and one of the big things that the History Center and a lot of the sites do is field trip locations, right? What does that look like then? So obviously an exhibit would be an easy thing. And it is the first permanent Native exhibit at the Minnesota History Center. There has been a lot of short-term exhibits, like about wild rice, like about certain, the U.S. Dakota War of 1862, stuff like that. But they all have been limited, less, usually less than a year. There's also native content in some of the larger exhibits, but it's amongst other content too of other communities. So there, so there isn't a sole focused. And we were, uh, what was great in it is in 2016, a department called Native American Initiatives was created at the Historical Society. I wasn't in it at this time. I was in collections doing my collections thing, but it really showed the focus and need to have appropriate and accurate representation of Native history in the spaces that the historical society reaches. And so we've evolved from, we've actually doubled in size from just last year, which sounds amazing, but there's six of us now. There's three. So it's not, it's not too crazy, but still it's better. I think it's a great thing. And we're all, we're an all Native staff, which is really cool. So the answer question was like, well, what do we, how do we talk about Minis the indigenous people of Minnesota? And we're like, oh, no, no, like you need a whole museum and then some to really be able to get everything. So 
how we wanted to talk about it is there is no timeline. We don't start from like 10,000 BC or whatever and end in today, then none of that. We uh, we lead with contemporary voices and pieces because we wanted to counteract that notion that Native people are no longer here. So the first thing we have is contemporary pieces by contemporary living artists that are part of who have participated as part of our Native American Artists in Residence program at the Historical Society. And so it's just a great way to talk about cross-departmental work, the work that people do. One of the pieces is by Dr. Gwen Westerman, who is, it's easy to talk about her because she's like the poet laureate now for the state of Minnesota. So I'm just all like, and Gwen does this, 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 and this. And she reviewed our exhibit um, script for us. So like we had the people involved, it's, a, it's just a great way and we go through, like we have themes and, but it's, they're pretty much mixed together within the indigenous groups. We only separate Dakota and Ojibwe in two sections because we really wanted to center Dakota homeland. So people understand that this place is Dakota homeland. And then we share about, you know, the Ojibwe migration and, and that story and the importance of wild rice. And then the rest of the exhibit is um, intermixed with Dakota and Ojibwe stories. We do acknowledge that um, we are missing some of those indigenous stories that get overlooked, like our Ho-Chunk friends, for example. And I, I believe the Cheyenne were here in the Meskwaki, like thinking about those two and how we can expand on that, um, because that is something that I know they, um, my Ho-Chunk friends bring up every once in a while. And so I'm all like, I try not to, <laughs> I was like, I, I don't, I don't forget you, but it was like, we need to yeah, we need to figure out how to fit those stories, weave them in better together with the larger story. Another thing we really want to focus on is a strong urban Native community that um, Minneapolis and St. Paul have, because so much has been born out of that um, urban community. And I literally, just before talking with you, I we were speaking with a a community member who she was, you know, at the places with AIM. She worked with Dennis Bates. She worked with Gerald Visner and she had all these stories. And I'm just like, oh. like, this is what I mean, just listening to her story. Like, like, that's really what I like to do is hear those things and share that story with how can we share that story then with the masses so they can hear these kinds of things and how amazing they are. Shimi Gwage for joining us. I, I guess I'm curious if you had any final thoughts. I think the thing I would like to say is that working at an institution like the Minnesota Historical Society is not easy. It, it can get really hard at times. There's a lot of trauma involved with it. and But we're really like trying to do the best for our communities because I know some people, they wouldn't be able want to do that kind of work. I've been told they're like by an elder, I could never do what you're doing, but I'm so glad you're here. And like hearing stuff like that, like that's what gets you all some way because you're like, sometimes you're like, oh, this, you know, this is so frustrating. I don't want to, I should just do something else or whatever. But then you hear those kinds of things from community. And I think that's what keeps me going. So there's a lot of trauma involved, but there's a lot of healing to be done too. And I like bringing the community along with me as much as I can. So that is like, that's my whole goal. And I hope I'm doing my ancestors proud by that and my community proud.
I, I love the you know that generational thinking is something we've hit upon many many times mm-hmm. during the podcast, and it's it's an important it's an important thing to do. Yeah. So well, and yeah. museums are so tricky too. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to I mean, with the history with native what did she call it three D art three D object three D objects instead of yeah. artifacts. Yeah. Yeah. That's rad. So making changes. Uh, for the better. So thank you to Rita Walzak Arndt, White Earth Nation citizen, who is the Program and Outreach Manager of the Native American Initiatives Department at the Minnesota Historical Society. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Native Lights, Where Indigenous Voices Shine, is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.